The International Association for Near-Death Studies presents NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. Welcome to NDE Radio, brought to you by IANS, the International Association for Near-Death Studies. I'm your host, Lee Whitting. Our return guest today is David Hufford, Ph.D., In last week's show, Dr. Hufford described his personal experience with and research into sleep paralysis. He's the author of the book, The Terror That Comes in the Night. Today, we're planning to talk about Dr. Hufford's research into NDEs and similar experiences among veterans and the military. Dr. Hufford uh, retired in 2007 from his position as university professor and chair of humanities and professor of neural and behavioral science and family and community medicine at Penn State College of Medicine. He's now university professor emeritus at Penn State, senior fellow in the Brain, Mind, and Healing Division of the Samuel E. Institute in Alexandria, Virginia, and adjunct professor of religious studies at the University of Pennsylvania. David appeared in the veterans video produced by Roberta Moore for IANS and was an Arizona IANS guest speaker in April. He recently completed a study sampling combat veterans and the prevalence of their spiritual experiences, and I heard from his Arizona talk that it's a huge percentage of the three types he explored, uh, after-death communications, near-death experiences, and sleep paralysis with spiritual presence. David has also surveyed military and civilian mental health clinicians to assess their recognition of the symptoms of these experiences. David, welcome back to NDE Radio. Thank you, Lee. It's a pleasure to be with you again. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you. Um, changing our topic a little bit, although I guess uh, you also examined the veterans on their uh, their uh, sleep paralysis. But, That's uh, right. Yep. Yeah. So tell us, what uh, got you interested in studying about veterans' um, spiritual experiences? Okay, well, first of all, I've been studying what we now call extraordinary spiritual experiences, meaning perceptual experiences, experiences, the the kind that people used to call visions, I guess we might say, um, that appear real to those who have them and that make a a claim of some sort, you know, about what's real. Uh, I've been interested in those for ever since graduate school. And the reason is, uh, there are many reasons, I suppose, but that those kinds of experiences are core to all of the spiritual traditions around the world But in the modern world, beginning with the Enlightenment, there was a rapid move away from these kinds of experiences to what uh, researchers now call ordinary spiritual experiences, meaning the interpretation of ordinary events as spiritually significant. So watching a beautiful sunset uh, and seeing it as evidence of the love of God, which is reasonable interpretation from a theological point of view, is an ordinary spiritual experience, as opposed to uh, just to be a little bit on the light side here, I'm not saying anyone's ever described this to me, but watching a um, sunset and turning and seeing that God is standing next to you and having God say, good evening, Fred, isn't that beautiful? Yeah, that would be a visionary experience and a yes. perceptual one, not not what we would call an interpretive experience. So in the modern world, uh, people are, are allowed, we might say, to have all kinds of experiences that they they may interpret spiritually. Some will, some won't. 
But those experiences, the visionary experiences that, that force those who have them or who hear of them, choose between, wow, a uh, what looks like a supernatural visionary experience or a hallucination. And that's part of the, the process by which these were expelled from modern uh, religion through the idea that these were psychiatric symptoms. And as they became stigmatized that way, which goes back to the late 1800s, that move in that direction, uh, both most religious traditions and most individuals uh, sort of gave up at least making claims about them, talking about them. So this makes a huge difference between modern Western religion and spirituality and the rest of the world and the history of our own spiritual traditions. Well, when I began to see evidence, and it began with what I did in my research on sleep paralysis we spoke about last week, and then when Ray Moody's book came out on near-death experiences, which was a couple of years after a... uh, a British physician named Reese published in the British Journal of Medicine an article about how common visits from deceased relatives are among bereaved people, and not only very, very common, but very good for them. That is, those who had those experiences had less depression, less weight loss, uh, less loss of sleep than people who did not have them. So they were not indications of psychiatric illness. They were something else, something that was positive. Uh, So putting those three together, I thought, well, that's enough to say, looks like maybe we are wrong about these experiences as being cultural constructs that you would only find in, I guess we might say, pre-modern civilizations. That's part of the reason that people came to believe that, well, educated people would not have these experiences. Now, you asked how I decided to look at this among combat veterans. I've looked in lots of different populations. I tend to look in the general population because I'm interested in how prevalent these are overall. And they're very prevalent. So in the general population, they're quite common. But there are some populations where the rates go up for particular experiences. So bereaved people are much more likely than others to have the experience of being visited by the spirit of a dead loved one. Makes sense that they would be. Um, And near-death experiences uh, are obviously much more common among people who have almost died. Now, that may sound silly to bother mentioning, but it is not not impossible to imagine that one might have the experience of feeling that they were leaving their body and that they might be going to die, that they were given a choice of whether to live or die, without a precipitating near-fatal event could happen. Mm-hmm. And we do hear some of that, but not so much. Uh, so then we look at, we've been looking at populations like beginning with people who've experienced cardiac arrest, which is a common trigger for near-death experiences. Other traumatic injuries that brought people close to death uh, also are triggers. Uh, people approaching death with fatal illnesses. So, for example, people in the last stages of cancer um, and other diseases that have the potential to bring about death. Those are the populations where we have tended to look. Well, when I undertook to do the study of combat veterans, no one had looked at them as a group systematically with published results data uh, on these topics. Now, 
while I was doing this, and I haven't published my findings yet, Tracy Goza and her uh, her colleagues published what now is the first published uh, research on the subject for near-death experiences, and found really interesting um, uh, interesting stuff, which I will just say is very close to what I found in my questions on near-death experience. I think that our our research supports each other. Um, but the reason that I thought that somebody, gosh, somebody really should look at combat is that the some of the features that we know can predispose to these sorts of experiences are trauma, loss, fatigue, lack of sleep, uh, and wow, those are where better to find those than in combat. Uh, and also among combat veterans. I would expect, I did expect, that it proved to be the case, that these experiences would be highly significant to them because of what they're coping with, uh, particularly because we know that near-death experiences and visits from deceased loved ones in particular have positive psychological and social consequences. So you have veterans, combat veterans who suffer post-traumatic stress who are, you know, in emotional difficulty because of their experiences, emotional difficulty that can go on for many years, knowing that these experiences help to um, ameliorate, we'll say, uh, emotional difficulty and emotional illness makes it really important to know about them. So I thought, let's go have a look. I expected to find very high rates of all three, and guess what I found? Very high rates of all three. Uh, I also really wanted to know, because it makes a huge clinical difference, whether the people who take care of veterans were familiar with these and could distinguish them from psychiatric symptoms. And that was a biggie, because the tendency to read these reports as psychiatric symptoms goes way back. And in the literature, we find lots and lots of evidence of people being misdiagnosed as psychiatric, having a psychiatric illness because of one of these kinds of experiences that turned out, we know now, to be actually quite common uh, and in many cases very positive rather than pathological. Uh, so I included, as you pointed out in your introduction, I included a sample of clinicians who take care of veterans and compared them to a sample of clinicians who have primarily non-veterans in their in their uh, in their practice, and we found, and if you'd like, we can go into some detail on how we did this, but we used, we began by giving all of these clinicians um, vignettes, about half a page of text from a real experience of somebody's patient, uh, and there were, we had one for each of the extraordinary spiritual experiences, and then we also had three well-known psychiatric symptoms, post-traumatic stress disorder being an example. And we asked if they recognized um, any of the, each of these experiences. We did them one at a time in the questionnaire. If they did recognize it, uh, did they consider it to be normal? Uh, did, would they treat someone who reported something like this? Would they refer, and to whom would they refer? And we had a five-point scale with five being heard this very often, one being never heard this. And on the conventional psychiatric symptoms, everything was up in the four to five range. And on the extraordinary spiritual experiences, they were down in the one to two range, meaning the answers were pretty much all either never or rarely. Uh, and on the extraordinary spiritual experiences, <coughs> they were generally not considered normal. They were considered to merit treatment. 
they were considered to merit referral, and most of the referrers said that they would refer to a psychiatrist. So all indications are that the, the and this is a substantial sample, I mean, not huge, but we had uh, close to 50 in each group of, of clinicians, and that the answers were consistent across the groups. The civilian, the non uh, the non-veteran population clinicians were a little more positive, but not more likely to recognize. Uh, it makes sense because if you're taking care of people who are uh, at a time when they might be uh, in active duty still before they were veterans, uh, you really want to be very careful that you don't miss a psychiatric illness before you send them out into action. So it's understandable they'd be more cautious. <clears throat> it is not understandable to me why they would be less knowledgeable because here they are with with client populations having, as you'll see when I give you the figures, probably the largest, the highest rates of prevalence of these experiences uh, that we have ever seen in any subgroup of the general population. And they're not being not being recognized by the people primarily taking care of them, uh, meaning that the likelihood of misdiagnosis, which is so common with these, is is pretty high. Mm. So there's there's I guess that's not the short answer anymore. I guess that's the long answer to why did I decide <laughs> to pursue this? It's just it it I don't mean just one more, but it is one more of the subpopulations that by comparing different groups we get to understand better about what the, the causes and consequences are of these experiences. <coughs> oh, Lee, there's one thing. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm, this is my voice here with bronchitis. Hopefully oh. we'll get through the interview. Anyway, uh, I wanted to um, point out that um, I coughed and I forgot. Oh, well, it'll come back to me. You go ahead <laughs> I, with your I, end I, of the conversation. A question naturally occurred to me as a chaplain uh, do you think you would have had a different set of um, figures if you, had, instead of clinicians, you'd talk to uh, military chaplains? No, I don't think so. I don't have good evidence, but I, my past experience with chaplaincy is that chaplains in training are very interested in learning about this, uh, and some of them say they have encountered things like this. But as far as general knowledge among chaplains of any sort, and mostly it's been healthcare chaplains, hospital chaplains that I've worked with, most of them have not learned about it in their training, and most of them are reluctant to talk about it openly. Uh, so even if they recognize it as something they've seen before, they don't have access to, you know, sort of the background that would allow them to know what they're supposed to make of it. <coughs> and what many chaplains deal with, sort of parallel to the clinician, the other clinicians responding to the psychiatric end of things, uh, people in pastoral care have theology to worry about. And the theological consequences or the theological connections of these experiences are difficult in, in the modern religious setting. You know, they're not taught about in seminaries. They're widely disparaged when they're mentioned at all in theological and pastoral literature. Um, I don't really know why that is, except that although these experiences tend to strongly support for the, the one who has them, 
the reality of the spiritual, of their own spirit, of the existence of other spirits, of the existence of God, they are not directly supportive of any particular religious framework. Uh, they don't look particularly Christian or Buddhist or Native American. I mean, they have some of the aspects of whatever culture they appear in, but they do not have uh, articulated theological frameworks written all over them. And that seems to bother a lot of people. And I guess it's the reason that even though in medicine where we have a general negative attitude, uh, on the subject, there is research and a lot of publication in medical journals on these experiences. But in the theological and pastoral care literature, there's very, very little, almost none. So um, I would say, as with many physicians, that pastoral uh, care people in training are enthusiastic when they start to learn about this, especially if they learn about it with data supporting the, the knowledge. Um, it is not something that the patient can anticipate getting a lot of positive response from. And that, to me, Lee, is part of the, the tragedy of this entire cultural blind spot that we have. These experiences for many people are the most profound and moving experiences they have ever had in their life. Yes. One of them terrifying, that being the one with sleep paralysis, and one of them extremely consoling and uplifting, being either after-death uh, contact with a loved one or near-death experiences. So they're terrifically important, and yet for most people who have them, and this is really sad to contemplate, they don't know that anybody else ever had one. <clears throat> Excuse me. They don't know whether it's common, rare, or unique. And of course, people want to know that about important experiences. The first thing we do, you know, you hear something strange, you turn to the person next to you and you say, did you hear that? We're always checking our experience with other people uh, and trying to get other people's input so that we understand it better. Uh, in both of these, both for religious and medical reasons, people feel constrained. They're afraid. They've always, in my interviews, people always tell me I didn't want people to think I was crazy. That's why I never told anybody. Mm. So they don't get to share the information. They don't get the input from other people. But if they do decide to ask somebody about this, who would most people think of first? They would think of either their pastor or their physician. And mm. both of those are likely to end badly. I remember That's been my experience, of, too. Yeah, One of my uh, veteran uh, folks writing about an after-death visit, uh, and these are related to near-death experiences because, obviously, anyone familiar with near-death experiences knows that the presence of deceased loved ones in the experience is a very common aspect. But this veteran said that, and she was speaking of when she was a child, she had had a visit from her dead grandfather soon after he died. She went immediately to her mother and said, Mom, Mom, I just, you know, Grandpa just visited me, and I just talked with him. And her mother said, No, no, dear, that's, that was just a dream. That doesn't really happen. And she said, No, it really was real. I was wide awake. And uh, her mother said, Oh, we'll have to go visit Pastor Smith. I don't remember what the name was. And got it up right away and took, took the child to visit the minister and she told him 
And he said, I, and this is from her words in, in her response on the questionnaire, he said, I know you miss him terribly and you would love to see him, but that just doesn't happen in this life. You will see him after you die. What happened to you now was just a dream. So she shut up about it right then. Didn't actually talk to anybody about it again until it came up on the survey many years later. Uh, but she said, even though she did not talk about it anymore, she knew it was real, and that her grandfather still shows up occasionally when things get rough. <laughs> so, you know, but what a what a shame! What what a gulf that opens up between pastors and their congregations. Right, and, and he, what a distorted view of reality we have if we don't oh, acknowledge yeah. that these things happen on a regular basis. Yeah, even if pastors and or physicians didn't want to say, and therefore that means these things are are real that is that's really the spirit of your grandfather and he was really there even if they don't want to say that they have to know that these experiences are common they are believable they are impactful they're not symptomatic of any illness and they make people feel better that's mm. important information do you suppose besides the fact that the military are more likely to have a near-death experience because they're more likely to be injured you mentioned um, trauma, fatigue, loss of sleep, PTSD, yeah. as uh, people people's experiences, or let me say brain conditions, that m might trigger uh, a, a mystical experience. Do you suppose there's some something that happens to interrupt the normal workings of the brain that opens a window that we can get a clearer view of the other side through? Well, I'm sure that's the case, Lee, uh, and... Throughout history, all sorts of what people used to call, very understandably, mystical experiences tended to happen under in difficult circumstances. In the circumstances in which a person might cry out for help to powers, you know, beyond what's available right there, you know, in a concentration camp, in battle, uh, when you're being held up at gunpoint, or when you when you are having a heart attack. Those, right. those circumstances certainly turn people's attention in that direction, and they do produce altered states. Uh, and it's, it should not be surprising that we would find that there are various kinds of altered states connected with these sorts of perceptions. Um, I mean, the near-death experience, clearly when it happens in a person whose heart has stopped beating, is in an altered state. When a person has sleep paralysis with a presence and, uh, and they're experiencing a breakthrough of REM into wakeful consciousness, that's an altered state. Um, I guess we could say that when people are grief-stricken, it's an altered state. But that leads me to, to remember that we really ought to say that even though these kinds of, of uh, traumatic experiences uh, look like they make the experiences more common, they're not necessary. That is, people often have, when, when they're in a perfectly normal state, often have similar experiences. So um, near-death experiences, well, for example, uh, Andrew Greeley, a sociologist, did a wonderful set of surveys uh, 
through the National Opinion Research Center at University of Chicago in 1973. And that was the year before Moody's book came out. And he asked a general question, which we can now see uh, would include, and I did a study showing that it does, in fact, include when you use it in the survey, would include near-death experiences, but go beyond it. His question was, have you ever felt that you were close to a powerful spiritual force that lifted you out of yourself? Now, he took that right out of the mystical literature. He'd never, mm-hmm. Nobody had ever heard of a near-death experience because Moody's book hadn't come out yet. Uh, but anyway, he got, I forget what his rate was, but it was quite high, <coughs> excuse me, quite high, higher than the prevalence of near-death experiences. But it includes near-death experiences. We, at, at my medical center, I, I did a study where we went uh, to a, a general sample, asked them Greeley's question, and then asked them a near-death experience question. And it turned out that uh, pretty much everybody who'd had a near-death experience said yes to Greeley's question. Hmm. And, of course, many people said yes to Greeley's question who had not had what we would call a near-death experience. They'd had a, a broader spiritual experience. So there is overlap between the near-death and the not-near-death experiences. So what I, the point I want to make there is that we, we do find these experiences in a variety of states of consciousness, but that includes normal consciousness. Do you have any suggestions for how we can reach chaplains and clinicians dealing with the military uh, to inform them that this is a whole area that they should uh, be better acquainted with? Well, that's a really good question, and I, I know a lot of people who are anxious to to figure that out, and I'm hoping that my paper on this, as it hopefully comes out this year, will be helpful in that. From my work with uh, CPE trainees, I think that what we need to do is, through the organizations that do the training, uh, convince them that this needs this belongs in the curriculum. We need to make sure that it's supported by data. And we need to get all of those people who have the proper experiences, and I don't just mean spiritual experiences, uh, engaged in this. For example, Diane Corcoran, who uh, had a career as a combat nurse beginning in Vietnam and who is now President Emerita of um, the International Association of Near Death Study. She's got tremendous experience with lots and lots of uh, both active duty and veteran patients as they were going through extreme stress and encountered near-death experiences lots. That kind of knowledge, that, that clinical knowledge, together with serious systematic scientific research, the thing that goes and her colleagues did, the things I'm trying to do, uh, Bruce Grayson's work, it has to be data-supported. And, and we have to help people to understand that there is in our society, because of what's happened in the last 150 years about spirituality, you're not, you should not assume there's a choice between scientific and spiritual. Scientific should simply mean carefully rational and systematic regarding scientific method. That does not rule out or rule in any particular conclusion. And what we're, we certainly have found with near-death experiences is that the scientific support for these as normal, positive, healthy, and I would add convincing, uh, the scientific evidence for that is strong. It's not a, it's not a 
religious position to take necessarily. It's a scientific position to take. And that's what uh, the people who work with CPE training and so forth really need to understand. That when we say we are talking about this uh, on a scientific basis, that doesn't mean that we are debunking it. That's really crucial. I found when I was teaching about this with my medical students and with graduate students, when I would bring the topic up, and then I would say, we're going to do a thoroughly scientific, rational job of analyzing and understanding this, people would immediately jump to the conclusion <laughs> that we were going to debunk it. Yes. Uh, and, and I sort of had to immediately say, but don't jump to that conclusion. Right. Because well, the, the, pro honestly, the problem with science the is they want replica, they want to be able to repeat the same event over and over again under the same circumstances. And, sure, and but you know... That Lee, doesn't, doesn't happen that way. And maybe that's why medicine is more open to this. Most of what we know in medicine is not known that way. <laughs> Do we know how to treat heart attacks because we have replicated them? I hope uh, not. <laughs> oh, what a good yeah. what a good point, David. That's terrific. Yeah. Well, all <laughs> hey, kinds of health conditions, we don't replicate them. We do something more of a natural history design on them, but it's thoroughly empirical. Excellent. David, unfortunately, we are once again out of time. This has been oh, uh, intense, and I'm glad <laughs> your uh, bronchitis allowed you to uh, talk for the whole half hour. Well, thank you, Lee. Um, Could I give you just 30 seconds here? The one thing that I, I forgot when I was coughing, it is yes. that this sample, the veteran sample with these high rates, more than half of everybody in this group has had two or more of these ex kinds of experiences. They are somewhat less spiritual and less religious than the general population, and they are better educated than the general population. So drop those two explanations out of the debunking approach. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you, David, uh, uh, for sharing um, this um, this insight into um, your work. I hope your paper comes out soon. When you when it does come out, um, perhaps we can have you back and to talk more about this. That'd be a um, delight. I'll send you a copy, okay. and we can see. Terrific. Well, listen, Thanks, audience, if you want to hear this or any of our past shows again, and I would certainly recommend last week's uh, talk with David uh, Hufford, just go to our website at nderadio.org for more information about the work of IANS and our upcoming conference in uh, Seattle. Check out that website, iands.org. And tune in next Monday, 11 a.m. Eastern, for more NDE Radio. This is Lee Whitting saying thanks for listening. <laughs>